Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So this is the second half of the Paticca Samapada Sutta. I taught the first half last Saturday. And it's a little bit difficult to teach the Paticca Samapada Sutta in two parts. Um, just hoping to maintain um, the context. So I'm just going to go back a little bit, not too far, um, and cover something that we finished the class with. And here, my commentary before this is, the Buddha describes how craving arises from feeling and how feeling is caused by contact. The Buddha asked a rhetorical question, and what is craving? There are six classes of, of craving. Craving for forms, craving for sounds, craving for smells, craving for taste, craving for physical sensations, and craving for ideas. That's really craving for everything that we can experience in life. And then the Buddha asks, and what is feeling? Feeling has six classes as well. Feeling arising from eye contact, from ear contact, from nose contact, from taste contact, from body contact, or from intellect contact. This is called feeling. So again, no ambiguity about that. We know where our feelings come from. And notice that there's nothing personal about any of that. Then the Buddhist asks, and what is contact? Phenomena contacting the eye, phenomena contacting the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the intellect. This is contact with the sixth sense base. So this is how we engage with the world, isn't it? Every human being. Through this sixth sense base, through our five physical senses and the sixth sense of consciousness, ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of four noble truths, right? We're not talking about some grand cosmic consciousness. It's just ordinary human consciousness that every human being has. And it's the, it's the only vehicle we have for gaining full human maturity. It's the only vehicle that we have for living our life is our consciousness, isn't it? And what we're learning to do through this particular sutta and through the Dhamma is recognizing where our distractions leading to uh, dukkha, to stress, disappointment, extreme suffering, not seeing the world correctly, not understanding who we are correctly. And in that way, we, we do not live our life because we're never present for it. We don't understand what it actually means to be a human being. And what it means to be a human being has nothing at all to do with anything external. It's all an inside job. In fact, we can take it all down to how I experience myself in this moment has to do with how I think about myself in this moment. Right? Does that make sense to everybody? And so if I'm, the way I think about myself in this moment is based on ignorance, whatever I experience, no matter how, what it might be, a beautiful sunset, winning the lottery, having an argument with my spouse, it's all going to be colored by that type of contact, coming in contact, with a, a way of thinking that is rooted in ignorance, that can't understand what's occurring 
in absolute human terms. Okay. Contact at the sixth sense base. That's how we live our lives. The next part, the Buddha asked the question, and what is form? What is form? Form is, now it's interesting how the Buddha says this. Form is feeling, perceptions, intention, attention, meaning all mental aspects, all whatever is going on in our mind, and contact. That's what makes up feelings. That's what gets us distracted. That's what causes us to create fabrication on top of fabrication on top of fabrication. Because the Buddha then says, discriminating self-referential consciousness is name. Remember, we talked about name and form a little bit on Saturday. Nama Rupa, name and form. Once I give a name to this form, now I'm personalizing it. And that's all that this means. This is another one. We don't talk about this too much in this class, but there's a few forms of Buddhism that get deep into this the, the, the Sanskrit interpretation of Nama Rupa. When all the Buddha is saying, name and form, you've given a name to this form. Now you're in trouble. Because once I've given a name to this form and start telling a story about this form, I'm compelled to defend the story. And that's all it is. It's all it's just a story. Until I understand what I am, what it means to be a human being, which is a reference point right now to what's occurring. Everything else is a fabrication, isn't it? But once I can understand that, and again, this is an inside job. This isn't, we're not chasing after salvation. There's nothing that we have to prove to the world, to me, to the Buddha, to anything in order to awaken, to gain full human maturity. But we do have to do the work. We have to understand what the Buddha is teaching us what we're teaching us, what we're teaching you here. I find it fascinating that he puts attention and intention as part of form. Because it's two different aspects of a, a form, a, a mind united in its body, mm. which is where we're going. Right. And intellect and attention are two different things, isn't it? Right. I mean, intention and... Yeah, attention and attention. Yeah. Two different things. Yeah. Uh, but it's still... Um, lumped into form. It's just what's happening here. Yeah. Once we get or here. Yeah, once we resolve the issues that we've caused by our own ignorance, again, we're not to blame. This isn't about blame or finding blame or cause or anything. It's just okay, we, we begin with accepting Dharma practice begins with accepting um me, John Haskell, I'm ignorant of these four noble truths. And for most of us, that's a gradual acceptance, isn't it? We don't do it all at once. Some people do. But it was gradual for me. I, I had to recognize where my ignorance was and, and abandon it. But that's the process. And there's nothing personal. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing negative about being ignorant of Four Noble Truths. In fact, I would say the most foolish thing any human being can do, especially once they have the opportunity to know better, is to ignore their own ignorance. But many people do. You know, we come up against it all the time. From the time I was a little kid, I was asking myself, why am I so disappointed? Why am I so, you know, a little 10, 12-year-old kid? Why am I so frustrated? Why am I so angry? 
and all of it, it wasn't because I didn't get a, a new bike on Christmas. It's because I didn't understand Christmas. I didn't understand any of it. And I was taking it personal. Right? My brother got a bike last year, and I, I got a basketball. I'm miserable because of that. Instead of enjoying the band, I'm not making a joke, but, but we do that with everything. Right? The three defilements, greed and aversion, rooted in deluded thinking, rooted in ignorance. And greed and aversion are two sides of the same coin, aren't they? And so because I don't understand who I am, and because I have to always keep creating a, a better and better and bigger and bigger story about myself, I'm always frustrated. I'm always distracted. I can never be completely satisfied if I'm living with that kind of thinking. And we all know people that we would say that are very, very successful, thinking that that should somehow make us feel better. People have a lot of money and all that stuff. And yet many of them seem to be very unsatisfied. When I was working, I had a lot of relatively high-end people. And so I went into people's houses. I got to know them. And I was surprised at how many people were... Um, they just seem to be struggling no matter what their stage in life. And what I was learning, even though I didn't realize it back then, is that all the things that we think are going to make us feel better and be calm and not be greedy or not be averse to things have nothing to do with what we might acquire outside. But how could it? We begin this whole teaching with understanding impermanence. So no matter what I have and no matter what I make of myself, it's for me, but it's all impermanent. When when I take my last breath, everything that I ever was and will be, well, what I will be is, is gone now, but that is all gone, isn't it? Right? Even if you took my body and just threw it in the backyard here because nobody could stand to be rid of John Haskell. <laughs> I always say, when, when I'm dead, I'm dead, I'm gone. But you can put my body out there and... and Matt would probably know better than I, Ron would probably know, but in a matter of time, that body's going to be gone. Either an animal's going to take it or it's going to rot away. There's nothing left. There's nothing inherent in this, in form. But it's animated by what we just looked at. Feeling, perception, intention, attention, and contact. And again, I'm just going to read this again. Discriminating self-referential consciousness is named. If I get rid of that self-referential consciousness, I've, I've now eliminated all the possibilities for ignorance because I'm no longer focused out here and on the story. I've now let go of all of that fabrication. The Buddha continues, name and form is discriminating consciousness. Discriminating. I like this. I don't like that. Right? That's discriminating consciousness bound to or clinging to physical form. Right? And this is, it's bound to this. It's, it, I, I'm, I'm compelled to think this certain way. And the Buddha doesn't even leave us there. He describes consciousness. This is where this type of thinking comes from. This is how we fool ourselves. There are six classes of consciousness. Does anybody want to guess where those six classes of consciousness, you can't, where those six classes of consciousness reside or where they come from? What do you say, Zach? 
He's pointing at me. I'm, I might be cheating looking at the board for a clue. Oh, is it up there? I don't think so. Is it the no, six? No, it's not up there. Wait, what was the question again? The six? Six classes of consciousness. Uh, you'll, you'll tell us the answer. I will. The eye, eye consciousness, ear consciousness. Did, did you say that? Yes. Uh, yes. Did you say it out loud? No. You would have got the foul. Okay. Softly. <laughs> Thank you, Zach. Eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness. Body consciousness and intellect consciousness. So it's interesting how the Buddha breaks that down. It's not just consciousness isn't just what's going on here. What's going on here is happening because, excuse me, because of my five physical senses, senses being interpreted by the sixth sense, by consciousness. And again, if that consciousness is not seeing things correctly, in fact, I would say if that consciousness is even seeing things just a tad askew, I'm in trouble. Because now I don't understand what's going on. I'm going to misinterpret it in one way or another. It's like it's constraining versus without ignorance, it opens up everything. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. The Buddha used to call his life in the palace, and he actually would refer to ordinary human life as a confining space right and remember siddhartha grew up in a palace he had everything any human being could possibly want and he couldn't wait to get out of there he called it a confining space yeah it was also um, there was an effort to keep him there oh well, yeah you know, a strong was, effort uh, confined yeah yeah you could say that his father king sadhana lobbied his whole life and and um, uh, created an environment for his boy so that he would never want to leave the palace. Was, he was insistent on showing Siddhartha or fulfilling any, any sensual desire that he thought young Siddhartha might have. And there's some stories where even as he was a teenager, um, getting into areas that we might question today as even morally Right, but we—I'm I'm not going to go too deep into that. But now we're looking at different ways of living, right? Uh, but again, this kid had any, everything he want, wanted, and he couldn't wait to get out of there. He couldn't wait because that was driving him crazy. He couldn't—he couldn't understand it. Even as a, a young boy, he was confused and frustrated. And once he left the palace ground and saw how human beings actually lived, he was shocked. But he was so shocked that eventually he figured out what was going on here and how to end our own contribution to suffering, not ending suffering, because there's the first noble truth, right? As a consequence of having a human life, there will be dukkha. So now we're going to look at fabrications, right? Remember, we started out with from ignorance of four noble truth comes fabrications. And what are fabrications? There are three fabrications, but I can almost say that, and I will say it now, there are only three fabrications that we have to deal with. There's bodily fabrications, there's verbal fabrications, and there's mental fabrications. We do it with these, these, these three vehicles. And what is ignorance? So again, we're not grasping after, okay, what are we talking about? Ignorance of what? Ignorance of Four Noble Truth is, ignorance is not knowing stress, not knowing dukkha. Right? I'm using the word stress, but understand that 
Dukkha, the word dukkha is much more um, all-encompassing and broad. Right? Every form, you, you could even say that um, a good example might be winning a lottery. How could winning a lottery be stressed? But I was surprised when I finally looked it up how many people won the lottery and they were broke in a year or two. They just couldn't wait to get rid of what they had. You know, and that that's that's stress at a pretty high level, isn't it? But it affects every area of our life. There is dukkha. Ignorance is not knowing dukkha. Ignorance is not knowing the origination of stress, of stress or dukkha. Ignorance is not knowing the cessation of stress. So that's possible too. And ignorance is not knowing the eightfold path leading to the cessation of dukkha. Not knowing that, not having those direct experience, the Buddha says, is called ignorance. The Buddha continues. Now, from the remainderless fading and cessation of ignorance comes a cessation of fabrication. So remember how this whole thing began, the Paticca Samarapada Sutta, what the Buddha awakened to. From ignorance of Four Noble Truths come fabrication. From fabrications come consciousness, from consciousness, etc., etc., through that whole 12-step process, we give birth to this moment rooted in ignorance. So if I bring it all the way back to the beginning and can eliminate that particular form of ignorance, now I will no longer fabricate this moment. Right? I'm not looking forward to not fabricating something in the future. I have to understand that my fabrications have to end here and now. And if not here and now, it simply means, okay, I need a little bit more practice and how fortunate I am to have that. Now from the remainderless fading and cessation of ignorance comes the cessation of fabrication. From the cessation of fabrications comes the cessation of consciousness. So what happens here? If I continue with the Dhamma, I'm going to get to the point where I lose the ability to think? Of course not. Remember the context that the Buddha is saying. Comes the cessation of ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. That's what we are doing. That's what we are bringing to cessation. That's what the Eightfold Path, remember I referred to it, it's the limiting factors of the Eightfold Path that let us recognize and abandon all views ignorant of Four Noble Truths. Does everybody get that? Because that's practice. You know, that's what we're doing here. And it's, it's, it's entirely ordinary. And I say that because the things that awakening, gaining full human maturity is certainly something that's not ordinary, but we're only dealing with ordinary humanity. My humanity, my process of awakening. Is just as ordinary as everybody else's. And if I succeed or fail, it's just ordinary. It's just an ordinary human life. So we're not we're doing something that will profoundly change our lives and improve our lives and give us a real understanding and meaning to our lives. But we're just living ordinary lives. And why do I emphasize that? Because it, we have to be careful that we don't think we're doing something special because we're not. All we're doing is what we really want to do, which is develop a conflict-free mind. 
to understand what it means to be me. And in so doing, then I can understand what it means to have a human life. I can understand humanity. I can understand why in my life, the fourth time I said this today, in my lifetime, almost 68 years, there hasn't been one day when there hasn't been a war going on. I think that's, that's quite a thought to, to ponder. And when you get into, well, why? Well, now I can understand it. But I should also qualify that, but there hasn't been one day in my life when something wonderful, like, I don't know how many babies are born each day, but that's pretty wonderful, right? New human life, even though there's wars every day in my life, people killing people, we're still in the process of creating life, too. Isn't that incredible, what we do as human beings? I mean, collectively, on one hand, we can't help killing each other. On the other hand, we can't help loving each other. That's the conflict. That's the problem. Because even those that want to hate others can't help but hate themselves. So you can't you can't escape this game. You have to you either have to understand it. I mean, again, this is my opinion. You either have to understand what it means to have a human life or not. And it's okay if you don't. But if you want to develop a conflict-free mind, Siddhartha Gautama figured it out, and those teachings are still here. Let me continue. From from the cessation of fabrications comes the cessation of consciousness, meaning ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. From the cessation of that type of consciousness comes the cessation of name and form. Now I'm not taking things personally. That's all that means. From the cessation of ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of four noble truths comes the cessation of taking anything personal. Comes the cessation of conflict. It's incredible, isn't it? I hope you all are um, aware and inspired by what I'm talking about because it really is incredibly inspiring and in spirit, in spirit, in spirit, this is the true human spirit is understanding that I can get to a place that understands what this is, what this is, what's going on. That's liberation. That's power. From the cessation of name and form, from the cessation of taking things personally, comes the cessation of the sixth sense base. Of course, the Buddha is not saying, okay, now you no longer have any senses. Remember the context. Now I will no longer use my senses to further my own ignorance. Now I am simply a reference point, right? If I'm not using my senses to further my own ignorance, to take things personal, then I am just a reference point to what's occurring. Right? Does everybody understand that? Please, please say something or raise your hand. Or say something if you don't. Because that's that's again, that's what we're doing here. That's where we're going. From the cessation of the sixth sense space comes the cessation of contact using the sixth sense space to further my ignorance. From the cessation of contact comes the cessation of feeling. So I'm no longer reacting anymore. Again, the Buddha's not saying if you do this, you'll no longer feel. I'll no longer use my feelings in an ignorant, 
and really corrupted way. To do what? I mean, I'll, I'll make conflict in the world because of it, but to continue to create conflict in my mind, conflict that I can't understand if I'm still rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. At least I couldn't. You know, I, I mentioned earlier about how it was when I was younger, or angry and frustrated and all that. But you could characterize all it with that one word. I was conflicted. And I wanted to end conflict. And I, you know, I think everybody wants to end conflict, whether they realize it or not. Some people, I don't know, blame religion for everything. But <laughs> um, and, and the other thing I wanted to say about that, and it's what's more remarkable to me this moment than it ever has been, is somehow in Siddhartha Gautama's conflicted mind, he was able to figure out how to undo it. And even more importantly, he figured out how to tell other people to do it. From the cessation of craving comes the cessation of clinging and maintaining. Now I'm truly liberated, I'm free. From the cessation of clinging and maintaining comes the cessation of becoming. There's no longer, there's no nothing left within me this is how the Buddha would have said it. There's nothing upon his awakening. He said, there's nothing. I'm going to do a little bit. You've seen pictures of the Buddha with his finger on the ground next to him and his hand pointed up to the sky. This thing this symbolizes that he's overcome the world. That's what he's saying. And he said, there's nothing left within me to provoke another moment rooted in ignorance. That's how he declared his awakened state. Nothing left within me to provoke another moment rooted in ignorance. And it's right here. From the cessation of becoming comes the cessation of birth. From the cessation of birth comes the cessation of sickness, aging, death, sorrow, pain, distress, despair, and confusion. Wisdom brings a cessation to the entire mass of stress and suffering. Those remarkable words. Wisdom, right? replacing ignorance. Um, maybe as we go along, if any of you think that, and you want to talk, you don't have to talk about this if you don't want to, but if you think that what I've discussed and taught these last two classes isn't understandable and applicable, let's talk about that. Because again, this is kind of the, essence of what the Buddha awakened to and he gave us an eightfold path to understand this. So let's go to who should I pick on first. Um, I'm going to go to Brian first. Hello, Brian. Hi, John. Um, from the arising of this comes the arising of that. From the passing away of this comes the passing away of that. Yep. It's just that. Thank you, Brian. Tracy, good evening. Hi, John. I can't say that I could give a class on this <laughs> in terms of my understanding. Um, but I can say that in practicing meditation as of late, I've experienced this. Oh. I couldn't um, put it into words and like repeat back to you. Um, I also, as a 
you know, sort of newbie in a way. Um, what's kind of cool is that these teachings are starting to really help me in my life. I think I told the group last time that I've been looking for houses and it's been very emotionally stressful. Lots of, lots of um, craving and grasping and averting. And I'm, it's interesting because um, I've been watching myself, observing myself um, go through all of this in a very different way. And the Dhamma practice really helped me this past weekend because I did get caught up and lost my mind, if you will, in something that if I had continued um, down that path and not remembered what we've been learning here, um, I could have gotten myself in a really bad situation financially. And um, when you say like, it's helping us and making our lives better, like that to me this past weekend was like a clear example of that. I was like, wait a minute, I'm caught up in, you know, craving yeah, and headed in the wrong direction here. And I was able to bring myself back to, you know, not taking any of this personally and just allowing things to unfold without trying to control or any of that. So, um, yeah, I can say that I'm starting to bear some fruit here, which is fantastic. So thank you. And it, it, it's fantastic. Um, and it's just like that, isn't it, Tracy? You're, you're experiencing the, the benefits of your own practice. And that's just how it should be. Not everybody is able to recognize it uh, in a practical way as quickly as you are. But it's just that. And it does sound like you're not judging yourself partially for when you do lose your mind. You're just understanding that this is what's occurring. Maybe mm. I'm... it sounds like that now it was a little bit of judgment at the time but i i was able to also see that that was not helpful either so you know it's it's gradually starting to take hold and make a change in me which is so i'm so grateful yeah Uh, so thank you and uh thank you for sharing that so clearly because again, that's that's what you're describing is Dhamma practice. It's just exactly like that. So thank you. Hello, Jane. Hi, John. Thank you for the teaching. I have nothing to add except to say that it works. <laughs> it does. Thanks, Jane. Hey, Deb. You want you want you want to say anything tonight? You don't have to. Hi. Uh, I think I'm comfortable enough for now, just watching life unfold. Great. I'm glad you joined us, Deb. Um, let's go to Zach. Hello, Zach. Hey, John. Um, thank you for the teaching. I'm uh, just very grateful to be here and uh, be a part of this wonderful community. Yeah, me too. Pretty profound once you let it, I don't know, really seek into all this, find its way into all the the crevices and places that you don't want to let it. 
yeah, let it wash over you, as I think you've said before. Yeah. Um, sometimes when we're meditating, I look over and I just see the, the smile on some of the faces around here, and I think I, I feel that energy uh, this evening, personally. So. Yeah, I do too, but I gotta ask you a question. What are you doing looking around while you're meditating? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, 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 usually, it's usually when I've decided that I'm gonna move from the mat. To oh, the chair. <laughs> so I've abandoned I've abandoned my mat. Yeah. Um, it, it, by the way, it's okay if you happen to open your eyes during meditation. Is yeah. it? <laughs> I've caught you one or two times. No. <laughs> well, I gotta check out all of you, make sure none of your eyes are open. Um and I've also I've experienced as I did this evening, you know, um, just being that reference point, not having to establish further or promote further or extract from a moment more than that which exists. It's wonderful. It's, it's tension free when you can do that. It is. And it's, it's, it's so tension free that it's palpable. It might not last, but. You know, that's, and that's, again, that's what Tracy was describing, too. What? Being what? Fully, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, at, at, so at what point, though, you know, when you're going about your day-to-day -day life and you do have motivations, well, is, is, if you have a motivation, are you a reference point any longer? Yeah, you're a reference point to your motivation, right? It take, you have to be motivated for me to open my mouth, I have to be motivated. Right? For me to get up and walk out the door, I have to create the internal motivation to do so. That doesn't mean that it's a distraction. You know, I can maintain my reference point to reality in any moment in life, can I? But that doesn't mean that um, things would things might occur that, that need your concentration. But that doesn't mean that you've lost your focus. In fact, that's why we do this. So that we can be well concentrated on this moment, whatever is occurring. So whatever is occurring might be something horrible. All right. This doesn't insulate us from from tragedy, tragedy or loss or anything like that. But we'll be present for it and we won't take it personal. And the same is true for all the wonderful things that happen. All of that. Now, the Buddha taught, I'm glad you're asking it this way. The Buddha taught the first noble truth, and it's the noblest of all of them. As a consequence of having a human life, there will be dukkha. He doesn't say that as a consequence of having a human life, it will all be dukkha, as we see it. But it all is, isn't it? Again, winning the lottery can be dukkha for a lot of people. You know, it doesn't, the things that we see as, something that's worthwhile to grasp after, a, a, a good thing or a benefit, are all impermanent. And we can't establish ourselves in this world in any safe way by our acquisitions, whether it's ideological acquisitions or physical acquisitions or personal acquisitions or anything, because it's all impermanent. It all can end like that. It doesn't mean that you're soft or passive or not motivated to do things. It yeah, in nothing, fact, even more nothing. so on on what you determine is most important for you, for you, 
for your life, right? I still live, I mean, for the limitations that have developed in my life, I still live a, a full life. I mean, I, you know, it, it, and I wake up every morning with a, a motivation to go do some certain things. I just started a new book. You know, life isn't over because I've developed a rather conflict-free life. There's a, there's a motivation to meet David at 6.15 and come here. I mean, it, it, but there was, no, there was no tension around it. There was no stress about it. It's just, okay, this so is what I'm doing. This being a reference point, then, this reference point, and I appreciate that, David, to me, does, does um, seem to me to be a certain type of passivity. You're saying, when yeah. you say reference point, we mean conflict-free mind. Yep. And so whatever you're doing is really just part of that flow. So I was trying to think of a reference that I could use. Um, I have no illusions about me being um, the modern day Hemingway. I am, I am not a great writer. I don't aspire to be. But I do put a lot of thought into when I try to do the best I can, because I think, for one thing, people are going to take, hopefully some people will take time to read my books. So I want to do the best I can. That's my motivation. But it's not because I'm taking it personal. It's not because somebody's going to read it and think I'm so-and-so. I've gotten quite a few negative reviews, by the way. Uh, and you could all go review my books on Amazon, um, please, if you have it. Um, but so, like, even a phrase, I'll spend time thinking, you know, I, I'm not, but I almost... I enjoy now thinking, you know, I could maybe do this a little bit better. And I play with it for a while. Sometimes I'll write it out a few different ways. Sometimes I'll leave it for a day or two. But all that is just what I do. You know, when we go out for breakfast, you know, it's, it's pretty tension free. I know for you it's not. Full of noise. No, I, I appreciate the distinction. No. You could also, uh, for instance, put ambition up against motivation right yeah. ambition already is edging into uh, being very personally involved in it's is about you mm -hmm. while motivation can just be that literally the moving force oh yeah i just want to i mean you know I, i'm describing um without any tension, doing the best I can in every moment. But I know that I'm in this moment, I'm giving you my best performance because that's what I'm doing. You know, I'm, I'm, there's no reason to hold anything back. But I, I haven't found too many interactions out in the world that I had any reason to hold anything back. Right. What again? What would we hold back from other people? If if we're conflict free, there's nothing to hold back. I'm not. I'm, you know, I'm not trying to to hide a part of my story from you. I don't want you to notice something about me. This is, like I said, I am what I am. And so the motivation to do things are motivations to do things. A, a Dharma practitioner might aspire to build the the, the most um, successful company. In the world, and as long as it's not because you 
want to know their notoriety, but rather your, your thinking is this would be a great thing for a lot of people. I got a great idea. You know, I'm going to make the world's best next widget. And a lot of people are going to have jobs with me. And all. that's, that's living in a world in a realistic way and without any eye making, if that's what you choose to do. I mean, isn't it, John, if, if it's framed by the four noble truths, then you do whatever you want. But if it's framed by ignorance, there's going to be eye making, there's going to be stress, there's going to be suffering. It's so always going to be constrained. All the same thing, building a bridge. Is it framed by the four noble truths? If your life is framed that way, that's what's going to be the byproduct of it. Yeah. It's not going to be, a, nothing else is going to come of that except what the driving force is, ignorance or understanding. Yeah, and that gets back to, if we understand that, if we understand that, then the most practical thing we can do is to take to the Dhamma and awaken. And as the Buddha taught to here, let's do it now. You know, what are we waiting for? And again, I'm not, you know, within reason, what are we waiting for? What, you know, what, um, what do I prioritize above Dhamma practice? And I, so I guess now that I said that, the most successful Dhamma practice will be for those that have, that prioritize it the highest. But that doesn't mean that you should be 24-7 listening to that crazy bald guy. But it does mean, in fact, there's guidelines on the website, you know, how we teach and practice the Dhamma. It does take a regular commitment, but I would say everyone that's here right now has that commitment. You know, you, you do the best you can, come to as many classes as you can, meditate twice a day, and try to keep up with the classes, and you will awaken. Matt. And, you know, just just because you Thank make you, the time for this practice and develop this practice doesn't mean that you're not going to fail at something, anything. It's... And does that matter? Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's, it's first noble truth. It's first noble truth. Yeah. So, yeah. and, and define failure, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, some, some of the best of my failures were just, you know, um, they weren't real failures. I just set myself goals that right. couldn't be. Right. Yeah, so I learned. And yeah. it's just, it's just it, whatever it is, whatever we saw as the big failure, it's just my life happened. Yeah. It's it's life as it occurs. So sometimes life as it occurs, in fact, guaranteed at some point you're going to get what you don't want. Yep. And no matter how much Dhamma practice, exactly. By the way, exactly. And there's no using Dhamma practice to avoid that. Yeah. What's the first noble truth? Is there is dukkha. And and always there is the second noble truth. Our contribution to stress is craving and clean. Whether it's ambition to whatever or fear of not succeeding or any of it. You know. So it's an inside job.
Thank you, Zach. I have a strong ambition to whatever right now. <laughs> I love that about you. <laughs> whatever. Whatever. What I said I have a strong ambition to whatever. Yeah, I'm really curious. About that. <laughs> we'll talk about it later. I'm talking about it. I know. I Thank you, Zach. Thank you. Hello, Julia. Hi. Hello, Sangha. Uh, thank you for the teaching. Um, I think the conversation was super helpful. Um, one thing I wrote down as you were saying it, John, that really resonated with me, just to repeat it back in case other people enjoyed it, was the, how I experience life or how it is is based on how I think about myself in this moment. And I think that that's consistent with the discussion that we've been having as well about the difference between motivation and ambition. Yeah. I was also wondering during the teaching, I thought this was a review of jhana practice. Why are we talking about dependent origination? Uh -huh. I haven't yet listened to Saturday's class, so maybe we draw the connection there. But I answered my own question just by experiencing the class and the discussion. So. Yeah, and in the series, yeah. I think the 11th <laughs> class, the 10th and 11th class, this is describing the, the process where we lose our concentration because mm -hmm. we be, the, the Buddha could almost as, as, as accurately describe the first noble truth as there is distraction, as saying there is dukkha, because it is the preoccupation with dukkha that we lose our lives over, mm -hmm. we lose our minds over. Right? We live our, when I say that, lose our lives over, meaning that we live within this fabrication. So if we lived 100 years, we still never really lived liberated in this moment through the Eightfold Path, understanding what it means to be a human being. Yeah. And that's the whole point. You know, the, the curious thing is that we weren't born understanding what it means to be a human being. But that's, that's a curious and foolish thought. Why? Because we weren't. You know, here we are. This is human life. You know, we've been on this planet for however many thousands and thousands of years, and we're still doing the same thing. So the Buddha was right. This plane of existence, this universe, is characterized for human beings as dukkha. You know, trees might have a different experience, but we don't know. We can't. We can't know those things. But we can know. You know, you could say that we're students of our own lives if we're doing this. You can know what it means to be you, which is everything, isn't it? I mean, it is, I think. To me, that the most important thing I could ever learn is what it means to be John Haspel and to end my own conflict with myself, right? By thinking that I need to be different. And what causes that? Radical acceptance, right? I understand it, but I understand it through this process through this eightfold path process by learning concentration and knowing how to apply it. And now like, like Tracy described, because of her deepening concentration, actually we all did this time, we're able to describe when we see our contributions to dukkha, to stress arising and interrupting that process. And I, I guess we're all doing that already. Did you have anything else, Julia? I didn't, thank you. Thank you. Let's go to Ram. I 
can't help thinking of you now. I heard this name a little while ago, but I'm thinking of Ramaswamy. It's really cool name. Well, I was Swami. Huh? <laughs> oh yeah, that's, yes, yes, that's Swami Ryan. Uh, yeah, thank you for this two section on dependent origination. Um, every time I go into it, uh, I, the, the subtlety and the, and the com complexity of of this of this insight that he had in, in the human mind is just staggering. It is. Um, to tease this, you know, basically the whole of the human mind apart in, into these individual pieces and, and show the relationships between them is just, I, and all I did was sit the hell down and, and get this concentration going. Well, he got he got pissed off, and then he sat. Yeah, yeah. Where the hell did I do all that stuff? Yeah. Um, so yeah, um, thank you. I still owe you a treatise on uh, on becoming, mm -hmm. uh, but I have writer's block at the moment. So. Well, when you oh. get it done, give me a call. I can't wait to hear it. Becoming, becoming. It's the whole, the whole deal is what are we going to become in this moment, right, David? Yep. What am I going to become? I'm all set, John. Hey, Dev. Nice seeing you, kind of. Thanks, David. Good to see you hey, too. Finally, Matt. Thanks, John, for the teaching. I, I really love when we sit down and do these, the sutta in particular. However many classes it takes to get it done too might be a, a record for fewest <laughs> well you know it's a funny thing to read i could read through this in about it's not a long suit there no but there is so much into it that mm. you know it could be a five class suit but it, again i i don't even like the idea of splitting it into two classes but I don't think anybody wants to be here till 11 o'clock no, it, it works yeah. and, and the usefulness of the suit is in those sections. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's not you know knowing the whole thing. Yeah. A, you don't want to do that. Yeah. B, you know, uh, the other thing I know I interrupted you, but that how clear this is, and in that mm -hmm. there was nobody taking notes during the Buddhist time. Nobody. There was no writing. There was only the uh, there was really only Ananda and his word perfect memory, and a few other folks that able to preserve these teachings. King the Shogun. I interrupted it. No, no, just really good Sangha discussion and yeah. really good to see everybody here. Thank you. I would say the same thing. I am so fortunate to be a part of your Sangha, and I really mean that. Um, are there any other questions or comments? We'll continue. Um, camera. Oh, lights. Thank you. Lights, camera, action. Ah, there he is. We'll finish with meta as we always do. So take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness of your in-breath and your out-breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on meta uh, from an adapted Karaniya Metta Sutta. 
This is what is done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. They are able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. They remain unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. They are peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud of demanding in nature. They do not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. They are always mindful that all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, emitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born. They are always mindful to not deceive another or despise any being in any state. They abandon anger and ill will with ease, never wishing harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart, the wise disciple cherishes all living beings. They radiate kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. <coughs> Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, they maintain refined mindfulness. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being free from all sense desires, they abandon ignorance of four noble truths. Having completed the path, they are not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class tonight. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. See you, Jane. Bye, See you, Jane. See you, Dan. See you, Dan. See you, Brian. See you, Rom. Well, I know that that charger worked. Um, Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.